You're listening to the Fearless Futures podcast, where we unpack and interrogate mainstream methods, as well as alternative approaches we have developed and deployed for equity and inclusion, working in daring companies across sectors around the world. Each week, we will explore a new angle you won't want to miss. So stick around. Hello, hello. Hi, everyone. I am, I say this every week because it's true. Very, very excited for today's episode and taping season two, episode nine, leading from behind inclusion and equity through HR and talent for the Fearless Futures podcast. If you have been listening thus far, my voice now sounds familiar to you. It is Sable Lomax, pronouns she and her, and I'm the Chief Relationships Officer at Fearless Futures. And today, we get to talk to Twanya Hood-Hill and Fiona Mullen. And I am really, really excited for this chat for a few reasons. And this will be new to Fiona and Twanya, but I swear it'll all make sense. So we've been chatting with leaders this entire season who have different responsibilities and roles within their respective organizations globally. And one interesting point that has come up, and not necessarily every episode, but in many of them is the role of HR when we're talking about all things equity and inclusion and what that means. So I think it's really, really neat that we get to sit with women who've had dynamic, long-term longevity experience in the HR world, um, in large organizations, various responsibilities, who can bring that lens to the conversation. Because HR, as you all know, has an interesting rep when it comes to in general, but particularly when it comes to anything related to inclusion and equity. And I'm just really, really excited to hear you all's experience and insight, opinions and input, you know, just from your background and your experiences, be it as a professional, but also as as a person in this space. So before we kick off, I'm going to read your bios. I hope you don't mind that. So beginning with none other than, I'm going to read this. So if my eyes are looking down, it's because I don't, I don't want to mess this up, is Twanya Hoodhill. So pronouns are she and her, and Twanya is the Vice President of People and Culture at TechSoft 3D. She has enjoyed a 30-year career leading learning and organizational development functions across a variety of industries at companies like Target, Genentech, Gap, Emmerprise, Financial, and Facebook. Twanya also has entrepreneurial experience as an external consultant, owning her own practice and being co-owner of a Minneapolis-based consultancy. Fiona Mullen, she and her, joined Bloom and Wild in September of 2022 to build their people and talent strategies and support their growth plans. She has spent her career in the U.S. multinational technology industry, where she has led international human resources and recruiting functions at companies including Ding, Facebook, Microsoft, and Accenture. Fiona was also chairperson of Fast Track to IT, a nonprofit organization, and sat on the board of Make-A-Wish Ireland. Ladies, you have quite the resume. How are you both feeling and doing today? Terrific. Happy to be here. Thank you, Sable. Likewise. Likewise. Okay. I've asked this question of everyone. 
And Fiona, I'm going to ask you it first. And then Twania, you can come in right after Fiona. No pressure whatsoever. But when we think about all things equity and inclusion and your experiences, and you might have more than one answer. So feel free to just choose one for the moment or slide into up to you. I believe in breaking rules sometimes. If you had to choose a mic drop equity learning moment that you've had in this journey of equity and inclusion, what would that be? Many, many. Um, some for myself, but the one, and I guess rel more relevant to the conversation we're about to have in my own job, and I would say over many years with many wrinkles gained along the way, is a conversation I had with somebody many years ago when I was a kind of mid-ranking HR manager working on a number of programs that we were trying to develop. And at the time, which would not be unusual in HR functions, you are trying to find the best possible solution in terms of a program for what you might, what I would have planned at the time as being, you know, impacting positively the majority of employees. In other words, you get in this instance, it was some changes we were considering to our pension program or 401k program, as you might imagine in the US. And I was gauging employee input as to how we might think about this. And I'll say now, I, I was not really gauging employee input. I was trying to, in advance, defend what I knew was going to be the solution that was approved. And I remember a conversation with a lady whom I knew pretty, I thought I knew pretty well. And she was challenging to me in how I was thinking about the design of this program. And I remember her words because I really didn't have a response for them. And she said, Fiona, you know, what you're doing completely excludes me and how I'm living my life. And I said, well, how, how do you mean? Like what we have is a pretty fair program for everybody. You know, we can't cover everybody's needs, but we think this is kind of, you know, where we're at in the market and we're pretty good with other companies and all the usual defenses you pull out of your armory uh, for explaining why this is the right thing to do. And she said to me, you know, my partner is female. And because we're not married, it was in the days before same-sex marriage, I'm not eligible. My partner's not eligible for any of the retirement benefits that we have to offer. And, you know, I'm 10 years away from retirement and that means we're pretty disadvantaged. First of all, I didn't know that she was in a same-sex relationship. That was the first thing. And she had to disclose that to me in order to make her point. Mm -hmm. um, and the second thing I realized that, you know, her needs were not being met and that it stood with me that my modus operandi in serving up the majority of employees, what I thought was like the, you know, the fair thing to do was actually quite the opposite. And then the second thing was this mm -hmm. burden that she was having to undertake that other people didn't. And I didn't have the language at the time to understand it in the way, in that way, but it, it, it just made me kind of close myself inside and realize like I was I was kind of embarrassed and ashamed it's probably shame is probably the world I that word I felt at the time and it, it stayed with me and how I thought about other solutions since then and then since then we have had a lot of um discussions around equity because the language of equity at the time actually wasn't very current fairness was probably the one we were using I was certainly using a lot um and so that just human experience 
I guess it just humbled me and, and gave me enough shame to really rethink how I was approaching some of these solutions. That's definitely one of those incidents that just like sticks, sticks with you. Um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Fiona. All right, Twanya. No pressure. Equity mic drop moment. I'm sure you have a few. It's interesting for me because I do feel like I've lived my life through, in some ways, a diversity and inclusion journey, right? Like I've lived my life along the journey and I have feel like I've always been aware of difference because of that, right? But what I recognize, and this was, this was a long time ago, this was early in my career, on a, I was manager of a learning and development team at Target Corporation. And I remember I did a lot of the diversity training and it was literally called diversity training. I mean, it was, you know, we, had, we weren't even talking about equity yet, right? Inclusion was a new term, right? It was really diversity at this time. And I recall being in conversations with participants and um, really good, robust conversations. And for me, it wasn't a specific mic drop but it was a pivotal time where I realized that there's no hierarchy in dimensions of diversity, mm -hmm. right? That I think before that, I thought that because I dealt with race and I dealt with gender, that those had to be the most critical. And what I learned quickly is that really there is no hierarchy and, um, and that helped me grow personally. It also then fed into the work that I've been doing since then around, you know, diversity and equity. But 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 even before that, it was it was a growth moment for me where I was able then to more genuinely and authentically um, embrace lots of differences. LBGTQI plus was, you know, became very, very important to me, still is to this day. And so it, again, it's not just my, my journey that is important, right? It is the journey that we all have. And the skill that I've had to learn is how to use my journey to empathize and understand and relate to others who are also in maybe similar, maybe not uh, journeys of, of their own. For those listening to the recording after, you can clearly tell why I'm excited for the conversation because just the level of honesty um, and transparency from folks who have, you know, a significant background in HR, I find to be absolutely refreshing. To be able to share, you know, I thought through this new policy or process and I thought it was fair. You know, I thought it would work for the majority of the folks serving to discover and have to sit with actually, you know, my well thought out intention plan left someone out. And what's the burden of being left out? And, and then to say, well, I was a champion for this, but in my championing, I only championed the communities that I was a part of based on my identity versus like being a champion for all those marginalized. Those aren't things people share just freely. And I think it's, it's helpful learning moments because it shines a light on all of us in this work are still learning along the way. And we might be at different parts in our journey and that's okay as long as you're willing and committed to sit down and go, oh, 
did not think about that, take responsibility, accountability, and, you know, move forward. All right. But that's not why we're here today. Officially jumping in. So you're both in HR. We're huge fans of you both at Fearless. When we were thinking about, you know, we have to have an episode where we bring in HR leaders because of the role that HR plays in all things equity inclusion within an organization. You know, Hannah, our CEO, Hannah and I, you mean McClowski, for those who don't know, we were discussing who should we have. And, you know, we're, we're thinking about names and we're brainstorming and we're like, Fiona and Tanya. All right, that's it. Here we go. Those are our two fingers crossed prayers to all the deities that the schedules and diaries and everything align. And I know you know, and I, and I said this a little bit before, but HR gets a bad rap. And it gets a bad rap, particularly when it comes to inclusion and equity. And it's not, it's not a new phenomena. You know, it's something that I think that has this bad rep, if you will, has existed for quite some time. At the same time, HR, the role of HR is like crucial to scaling, you know, equitable change within an organization, despite the fact that it often gets a bad rep. And we all know HR, you know, is control of policies and governance and structures, you know, within an organization. And sometimes I think that bad rep, that bad rep that it gets is based on the resistance that other folks within the organization might feel from the HR leaders themselves. Why do you think that there is resistance oftentimes from the leaders within HR? And, you know, why do you think that continues to happen? We know not every HR leader is resistant to this work. But for those who are, why do you think that is? Because I'm sure there's different, you know, reasons and you've been privy to different conversations. But and why do you think it continues continues to happen even in, you know, the year 2022? So okay, I'll t- I'll take a stab. Um Fiona is smiling, so I So I do believe that most HR leaders, especially experienced HR leaders, have been on their own journey and most are um, truly uh, wanting to do um, what's right for the organization. They do believe in diversity. They believe in equity. They believe in inclusion. I do believe that. The challenge, though, is that they are working within an environment that is not as committed to the journey, oftentimes. And when you're in HR and you're working in an environment that's not where you are, it looks like HR is leading. We're pulling the organization. And I think the danger in pulling the organization is that we then lose credibility because then we lose the ability to be in touch with the company, what's most important of the company, and we're all about have our own agenda, and it can be very, and it's a very, very real fear for HR in general, is that we're no longer in touch with what works at this organization, and so that fear of of looking like we're isolated, that we're not in touch, that we're not going hand in hand with the organization, looking like that is a fear for HR leaders. And so oftentimes you see people resist some of the 
<clears throat> more radical, I don't know if radical is the right term, um, or maybe more uh, intentional change because they don't want to appear out of touch with the very company that they are committed to serve. So that's, that's one take on it. It's a hard question for us, right? Because like we are of the community um, and we're the custodians, um, we're the people who are the custodians of the people's experience in a company and, and however that is shaped. I do think many functions of HR are so used to protecting the company that they unintentionally use that mechanism to like over function on protecting on, on other things that they view or, or you, know, you know, may view as being kind of threats. And I don't think it comes to Twanya's point. Like I do think the intention is there, but sometimes the practice isn't built through the organization to somehow let go a little bit from that kind of overprotection of the company's interests in what might seem like allowing conversations or practices which they that therefore cannot somewhat be controlled, like a bit of a kind of you know Pandora's box somewhat. And that that reaction is we kind of have to curate this experience, and to do that we overly control it, and therefore that feels like we're resisting change. I think that's one somewhat benign view of of the situation, but I'd say that's you know practically in agreement with, with Twanya's view, which is good intentions, but perhaps misplaced practice. And certainly, you know, Twanya and I have many years between us in, in HR and, you know, I can speak for myself, but like I, I very much started off my career in the world, like many of my peers in protecting the company, doing the right things, believing in the agenda, operating all of the, the kind of best practices, but really not the spirit of what we're trying to achieve. And that can be viewed a million miles by some by a person whose very lived experience isn't served by that practice, but is intended to be served by that practice. So I think that's that's the first thing. We are also in that nexus of accountability, but don't always have the agency. And I think that's I 100 percent agree with 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 Twanya there. Um, and I think many organizations have moved significantly in the direction of really sharing that accountability across the leadership for culture um, and, and really seeing the people function as being an enabler and a thought leader and a facilitator, but, but like not the, the place to blame when things go wrong. And I think the final point I'd make, and, and this is something I have had to learn, and I honestly will say to myself, well, I, I think I have done this. I've, I've gone back to like diversity school halfway through my own uh, career to really look myself in the face and, and kind of ask myself, am I really doing the right thing here for the agenda? You know, moving from the more practice to the, the kind of spirit of what we're trying to achieve. I'm not sure really how to, to, to kind of be brutally honest about this, but I think oftentimes... Uh, we are afraid to let people in to curate this experience with us. And we do it just enough in order to have a, you know, the right level of employee engagement and community-based engagement around issues of equity and diversity. 
but not in so, not so much that we feel like we're losing control. I think that can be a fear in many people functions um, of getting it wrong, of admitting that we've made mistakes. And I often think if we could be a little more honest with ourselves, with the communities we're trying to serve, that we might make more progress. And certainly it would feel more comfortable for us, I think, that level of honesty. I love that you just shared that because one of the questions that I, I had for you both was this idea of how do we bring more humility into the space of HR when trying to do this work? Because none of us know everything and you are going to make some mistakes doing this work, even those who are like global experts and in all things inclusion and people functions, et cetera. How do we, I'm gonna use your word Fiona, like how do we cultivate a spirit, a way of being as HR leaders that leans into that humility? So, you know, we, we're holding that we're responsible for this, but recognizing that we are humans trying, I'm saying we as if I'm in HR, but that, you know, it's comprised of human beings trying to do this work. Like, what would it look like to bring humility into this space? Because I'm just thinking about that last bit you said, Fiona, where, you know, I'll collaborate, but only, you know, within a way that I still maintain a certain level of, of control. What would it look like to kind of release that a little bit? What does that require to go, you know what, HR, we can we can have some humility in, in this in this space. I mean, I think first of all, it's about acknowledging it. Um that mm. not everything has to be defended. Like it's going back to curiosity. Why? Yeah. Understand. Like, and I'm so not perfect at this, by the way. Um, mm. just to be clear. Um, because when you're busy and you're trying to achieve impact, mm -hmm. you want to move fast. And in a way, I think we're asking of ourselves to move a little slower, to understand more and bring more people into the discussion. And like that's in a way, it's the same principle of change, right? Like if you want to drive really good change, you engage the people you're trying to bring on the journey um, in really meaningful ways. Um, and so... I think, like, practically speaking, it is about bringing people into the real tensions that exist um, and trying to design things that meet really diverse needs um, that sometimes appear like they're in conflict with each other. Um, and to share maybe some of the burden of that challenge. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that. Tanya. as Fiona was talking, question came to my mind very much in line, but, you know, if we had to set the conditions for HR leaders to lean into a space of humility, but also to go, we're human beings, you know, trying to do this. So we are going to make some mistakes. If we step out of the, the people function in general, what would and this might come from senior leadership, you know, this might come from overall organizational culture, what have you, but like what conditions would be necessary for the HR leaders to feel as though they could lean into that humility based on your experience? Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, I think the, 
I think the answer is shared accountability, shared ownership. Shared. That it is not, and I say not in all capitals, not in OT, the HR, it's not HR's job to um, make our culture and environment an equitable one, mm-hmm. an inclusive one, right? It's, and and so I think uh, 100% what Fiona said, completely agree is the first step is acknowledgement, publicly acknowledging that we don't have all the answers. It's our job to help lead the way, mm-hmm. but we don't have all the answers. We expect to get, we're gonna source the answers through all of us coming together. That's not, that's one is the acknowledgement. But then the second piece is, and again, we may be even the thought leaders. We may even have um, information, but we don't have the answers. The answers are in this organization. And I would say you were asking about, well, how do you work you know, with the, the senior leaders and that kind of thing? It is all about sharing the accountability and sharing the ownership. And um, when in organizations where I believe, where I've seen... Um, that really feel truly inclusive, right? They're not just putting programs in place. They're not just saying things that really, it really feels that way. It's because every leader owns mm. um, owns the work, owns the effort, mm-hmm. um, owns the learning. And uh, that the humility that you've talked about is required for HR. It's not that HR professionals want to be the experts, all the time. But because we bring the information to the organization, we might bring the challenge to the organization, they look then to us for the solutions. And so we want to oftentimes, I feel this tension of getting out of the way. Like I don't want to necessarily be, you know, the one carrying the flag. I want to be there pushing the organization along. Let's go together. And so it's changing that mindset even as to what is the function of HR, what is our role? Mm. And having people uh, and leaning into the fact that our role is not necessarily ex- the, to be the experts. Mm-hmm. Our role can often be, again, bring marching along, maybe starting to to you know plot the path, but then on the path with with the organization, mm-hmm. not out in front of it necessarily. So I think there is a level of humility that we absolutely have to adopt. I also think there is a level of um, there's a level of kind of <laughs> bad term, but cutting the cord, right? Letting the organization do, you know, and and not assuming that we have to again protect everything. Again, that was another great word that Fiona used. We don't have to protect. We can actually go through this journey together, and we can figure it out together, and oh, we can make mistakes together. You know, and it's not it's not HR's fault. It's not HR's, you know, job. It's not HR's mission. It is our job to bring the organization along in the same direction with my exec team members. Right. Mm -hmm. They look to me to do certain things that are HR related. Right. And unfortunately, um, in many organizations, Equity and inclusion are HR tucked under HR, related. Yeah. They're not. We know tucked that, under. but that is where people go. And so I am always having to re-say, no, you, know, th- you guys own this. Mm-hmm. Own this with your teams. You're accountable. You know, you can make these decisions. You go for it. And um, allowing people the, the chance and the space to do that. 
I love that you've raised the question, um, what is the role of HR? What is the purpose? And then tying into that, the, the, the idea of shared responsibility of this work, equity and inclusion work across the organization. Um, because when I, you know, just pulling out and doing a macro view, if you will, like you said, Twania, oftentimes I do not have the math, but let's just pretend eight times out of 10, all things equity and inclusion are, t- are tucked under HR. And then if HR has a bad rep, and then the everyone views HR as being solely responsible for organizational culture, I am no Michelin chef, but it does sound like a recipe for not get not reaching desired outcomes. So based on you know your your experience, what have you seen done well? Or maybe, you know, conversations you've had yourself with other leaders who do not sit in the HR people function to say, actually, this is a shared responsibility across the organization if the goal is to prioritize equity and inclusion. Because if it only sits with us, we're never going to end up being an inclusive organization. You know, the roots might sit with us, but the branches and the leaves do have to go elsewhere for lack of a better analogy in this moment. And not just shared responsibility, but shared accountability. But I'd love to hear, you know, how have you seen that level of sharedness be it responsibility or accountability, change the ways in which, you know, HR is able to move through the different, you know, goals and and desires to have, you know, an equitable workplace. I I mean, I have a couple of examples, one less good, one better. <laughs> um, obviously, you know, ideally, you want everybody to be contributing because if you take the principle that everybody is a leader in the company around culture, not just leaders who have power and of organizations, then obviously you want to invite everybody into the conversation because there's, you know, agency there and um, it begins, I guess, a bit of a virtuous circle through the organization. Um, but at the end of the day, equally, you you we really want to share that responsibility with leaders who do have organizational power and their shadows are cast very widely for good and bad reasons, we know. And people do things as a consequence of what they say and don't say, do and don't do. So that's really important. I guess my bad example is one where that accountability was really high on the part of organizational leaders, but with hard edges in that there were repercussions for things not happening that leaders didn't do around DNI. And it it was all of the practice and none of the spirit and um, progress, like impact made on metrics, um, but no impact made on culture. Well, sorry, probably impact made on culture in terms of the organization became more diverse, um, but, but, you know, good progress in the short term, not progress in the long term, probably is the best way to describe it. Um, and then there's the leadership accountability whereby um, somebody goes on a on a journey with you around what does that mean for them personally and begins to connect with it um, um, 
and go through that that kind of journey of recognizing privilege. And let's face it, you know, most senior leaders are middle-aged white men. And in my experience. Um, and so with good intentions, and, and I, I'm not trying to be um, critical here, but with very good intentions. And so there's, there's, a, there's learning there um, to be supported on the part of, of HR and that partnership that we have with the exec team or the leadership team, however they are constructed in an organization. Um, but finding the hook uh, to bring them on that journey is um, sometimes I'm not the best person to do that. I ha- you know, I'm, I have a kind of where the HR title, of course, I'm going to say certain things. Um, but I guess the route to that sometimes can be around connection, connecting a group of leaders or a person with people who have other stories and um, kind of taking steps that help someone begin to understand that there is a journey for them to undertake and bring that into their own leadership of their organization or the entire organization. Mm -hmm. And that helps them with a narrative to connect with people's experience, even though they can't from their own lived experience, but they can from the organizational experience. And that going that route, which is longer, messier, much less comfortable, um, is, and much less sure of the met the success on the metrics um in my experience is much more impactful in strengthening mm-hmm. culture in that you're inviting more people into the the journey with a leader and therefore it's more sustainable on many shoulders than on the shoulders of the hr person or team um so i think for me you know, and, and obviously working with Fearless Futures, who've very much been part of um, my uh, work with, with leaders, um, that has been very powerful. Um, it doesn't always work with everybody. Um, it can lead to somewhat tough conversations with people, um, but it um, certainly would be the way I would travel in the future. I love that you just highlighted the idea that it's not necessarily the nicest, cleanest, well-paved journey, because I think that's oftentimes an expectation um, for this work. It's like we we need some quick wins. We need it to be smooth. We don't want to ruffle a bunch of feathers. We want everyone to be happy and pleased. And this is the you know the goal at the end. And it's like, wow, that's really understandable. But that's normally not how this works. This work is messy. It is uncomfortable. It does require multiple iterations. You know, it does require some reflection, um, often personal reflection to to figure out where did I go wrong? Um, You know, what could I have done differently? And just highlighting that when you do go that route of leaning into discomfort, leaning into a couple of windy roads versus a straight, narrow path, the change that's possible, the change that's possible on the end. I think there's there's something powerful to saying this is not on us solely because of our title within within the organization. We all have to own this work. We have to own this transformation. So shifting gears just a little bit, but there there is some overlap here. I know that it's no surprise to you that 
sometimes, maybe not in your current organization or even past organizations, but you've just, whether it was the LinkedIn post, uh, um, business insider article, like wh- wherever you might have seen it, this idea that for certain, I'm just going to use the word initiatives for lack of a different word at this juncture, but certain quote unquote diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging initiatives, there has to be a business case um, that's brought forth in order for it to be greenlit and resourced, resource be it time, people, um, money, or or all of the above. And it's probably no surprise to you that those of us at Fearless Futures are extremely critical of the idea of the business case for diversity. Um, our CEO, Hannah, again, Naima McClowski, has written a blog post about it. She's talked about it in season one of the podcast. And I'm just curious because knowing the experience that you all have had across many organizations, and I imagine some of your friends, um, former colleagues, also been in HR in different organizations, you've come across a conversation or two that asks for the business case in order to get something moved, you know, moves further along um, in that process. And, you know, when you're working with folks that have worked with folks that wanted you to build this case in order to do X, Y, Z, whatever that thing might have been at the time, how did you navigate that process knowing, leaning into your words, Fiona, knowing that the spirit of what you're trying to do is in absolute alignment with, you know, the people function, but knowing there's this individual or team of individuals that you need on board in order to be able to go forth, um, you know, with that initiative, again, for lack of a better word, how have you navigated it? Because the, the idea of the business case has not, it has not gone away. It continues to, to show itself. What I have seen is, and there's, there's kind of rights and wrongs to this, but how will this deliver the impact we want it to relative to something else? Um, and let's focus on this thing, this aspect of diversity. Um, and until we have more progress delivered on this, we won't do this other thing. As if, and, and on the one hand, and I've struggled with this because on the one hand, I get very much get the challenge of um, spreading focus and effort across so many things that actually they become some of our vanity projects that don't actually deliver value for the people who they are intended. Uh, and I'm being maybe a little mean with that statement. And so we do have to be quite critical in assessing our work against what we intended to achieve. Um, but where we're taking one, like we take one strand of diversity and say that's going to be our priority or a couple at the expense of others, I find quite difficult because oftentimes it's with, you know, admirable intention around impact, um, but it, it it somewhat undermines the entire objective of what we're trying to do, which is arrive at in a diverse and inclusive experience for for everybody. You know, I'm really glad that you raised that because you're right. There, I can imagine there are many organizations that aren't necessarily using the language of the business case, but 
are operating in silos. Like, okay, I hear you. We need to, you know, there's this community of marginalized folks. There's that community of marginalized folks. And we're going to get to them. But first on the agenda, I'm just going to use for the year 2022, we want to work on the gender initiative. And then next year, we will focus on, you know, um, people of color, Black folks, folks from um, certain minoritized ethnicities. And then the year after that, LGBTQIA plus community, you're up. Um, I'm really glad you raised that that siloed way of approaching inclusion equity work. When that has been a reality that you, you've you navigated, how, do you, how have you encouraged them to go, I'm not saying we can't focus on gender. I'm just saying that if we only focus on gender, we're actually missing out on, you know, a black woman, a disabled woman, or, you know, so forth and so forth, just to bring that level of complexity into the, you know, whatever solution folks might be drumming up in, you know, at the conference table or on a Slack. I think for me, and, and again, maybe this was close to what a, a mic drop moment that I had was really thinking about, let's use gender as an example, is that oftentimes, certainly in my experience, criticize myself here, is that the gender um, agenda really served a middle-class white woman, of which I'm one. Um, and so I don't need to be served mm -hmm. by that, you know, effort. I should mm -hmm. be an ally to my community who might be marginalized by virtue of another characteristic. Um, and trying to turn the conversation into one of really mm -hmm. let's understand who our community is, because how we view it is is in of itself exclusive. Um, and then when you kind of unpack that, you begin to see the somewhat ridiculous nature of, of dividing it, it dividing it up. Um, I, I look on, on winning the arguments of like focus and impact, I, I don't think I can declare significant amounts of success there all, mm -hmm. always. Um, uh, boards want to see material progress on numbers and executive teams want to deliver on those numbers. Uh, external stakeholders like the press and our employee groups also want to see uh, material improvement on those numbers and rightly so. Um, and just the unintended consequence of that is not as understood in that it tends to narrow the focus on very specific levers that deliver on that. And I think as a, as a function we need to just watch for those unintended consequences and try and bring back on the table with, with leaders um, that we, we, we need to do that and. Mm. I like that, that and because oftentimes folks don't, and, and I, wanna, I don't want to generalize, but there are instances where people can find it difficult to hold you know, two things at, at the same time. And then if they have if you feel tension between the two of them, trying to figure out how do you reconcile those two things? And if they can't be reconciled, being really, really clear in if we make a decision, whatever that decision may be, are we clear about who we're prioritizing and what's being prioritized in that decision being made? Not easy things to do by any means, but just being really clear on if we do this, then this is what we're communicating, um, you know, to the rest of the organization. If we do this, 
this is what we're communicating. Like, what's the messaging and comms um, around that? I just wanted to say that the business case, the reason that I reject the business case, and it has taken me a long time to figure out how to get the right words around it, but the business case is just that. It's facts, it's numbers, it's business. But for me, in order to get to true equity and inclusion, you need to have empathy and you need to have some feeling in there. And that, that if you can't experience and feel the need for this, then you'll never get there. If it's a piece of paper, if it's a chart, if it's an Excel spreadsheet, it's never going to get you to true inclusion. And so when you talk about the business case, you wipe out all of the empathy and, um, and emotion that I think is required to treat another human being in an inclusive way, to interact with people in a way that values who they are, you know, and, and all that they bring. That is not on a spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. Even if you have a stock photo, so. it's still not there. Um, thank you. Thank you for <laughs> sharing that. So I am mindful of time. I have, Thanks for letting I'm me. exaggerating here, Okay. but I had no problems drawn yet. I have so many questions I want to ask, but I'm going to do, I'm going to cheat here. I'm going to do three more, one for the each of you, and then one that you both will answer because I've asked every guest who has joined us thus far for season two. So the first question that I'm going to ask, I'm going to send this to you in your direction, Tanya. And it's related, it's related, it's related to all things recruitment, because I'm sure you both have heard much like the business case, even if you haven't heard this in your experience or recently, when we're when we're talking about recruitment specifically, oftentimes one of the pushbacks, um, well, one piece of pushback that you'll hear is that the reason why all senior leadership is, you know, you know, middle class or upper middle class, white, cisgender, heterosexual men is because of the pipeline problem. The reason why you don't see more, you know, black women or indigenous talent or disabled talent, like whatever that marginalized community might be in the organization is because of the pipeline problem. And we know at, at Fearless Future is that the reason is not because there is a pipeline problem. There's other reasons why that is the case. Twanya, when that's being brought to you, even if they're not using that specific language, what have you said or done to address like, mm, I'm not actually sure we have a pipeline problem here, but we do have a problem here. And the problem and the burden is not on those within these marginalized communities. First of all, I 100% agree that it is not a pipeline issue. Um, I am at, uh, you know, again, a tech company and you know, um, it's very, very easy in tech to say that the pipeline isn't there to bring in more um, engineers of color, you know, or more GLBTQI plus engineers. And, um, and I am very happy to say, well, <laughs> we're going to do the work. And it might take, it doesn't even take more work. It takes a different level, a different mindset and different paradigms. So if you only recruit at where you're used to and where you're comfortable, you're going to get the exact same, you know, output. If you open up your scope and you are more broad in looking 
for talent, you're going to find it. And so um, I actually implemented uh, two years ago here at Techsoft 3D um, a diverse slate approach, just traditional diverse slate, which said that every final slate had to have some level of diversity in it. And it didn't mean that every single candidate had to be of a diverse background, but there needed to be some diversity in every final slate. And that, and then the best person gets the job. But that has resulted in actually probably more now, but the last time I measured 48%, so almost half of our new hires in 2021 were from diverse backgrounds. And it was not harder. <laughs> it was just being intentional about it. Um, having been an engineer, I know that we exist. I was an engineer many years ago when the pipeline problem maybe was really a problem. But I also know that there are lots of engineers who are um, on the market. And I wouldn't say just engineers, it's all employees, but that mindset that the pipeline doesn't exist really just says that we're not willing to go outside what we are comfortable with to find the pipeline because the pipeline does exist. Thank you for that, Twania. I'm still being I'm still being cheeky here with timing. Final question. This is for the both of you. If you could have dinner, breakfast, lunch, a meal, let's just say a meal with anyone in the equity and inclusion space, be it past or present, who would it be and why? So here, here's, I, I wouldn't say that this person is overtly in the equity and inclusion space. She is a producer and she has brought um, in a beautiful way um, and in a very inclusive way, she's brought and highlighted, brought to surface um, stories mm -hmm. of um, people of color. And again, in the most beautiful way, I, you know, she's amazing. And her name is Ava DuVernay. I knew you were going to say Ava. And I, I love everything she does. And the work that she does is so... Uh, it's epic, obviously, but it's also she takes very, very sensitive and deep, deep issues and makes them relatable to everyone without making people feel guilty, you know, mm -hmm. or making them feel ashamed. I, I don't think I think that she does it in a way that's just beautifully um, saying this is who we are. This is this history. This is what this group is dealing with. Honestly, Fiona, Twania, thank you for your time. Thank you for your energy your transparency and your honesty, you know, discussing with us all things HR and talent um, in this space. You didn't have to do it and you certainly didn't have to be as, you know, vulnerable and giving um, as you were. So I Thank really, you. really appreciate you joining us on for today's episode. Thank you. The opportunity was, was wonderful. It was a highlight actually of my week and I just wish we could have gone longer, <laughs> could have talked forever. Thank you for having me.